All right, what's going on? Yay. Okay, so we're not uh, doing a regular scripture reading this morning. We'll do something different. We'll get there. Um, you guys are confusing me today. First service was a lot of people. Second service is light. I didn't know we had so many people that are like travel for Veterans Day. I guess a lot of people just wanted to get out while it's cold because now it's hot and we're regular again. Um, okay, so first thing we're going to do is we're going to start off uh, with the Shema. So do me a favor. Stand with me, if you would. Um, this is uh, known as the, uh, the, the Jesus Creed, really. Uh, it's sort of the edited Shema as Jesus gave it to us. And we are going to be a people who have passion, unlike, unlike Watermark. We're going to have passion, and we're going to have um, emotion. And we're going to say it just like we mean it, all right? So you're going to repeat after me out of the first part. And the second part, we're all going to say it together. So repeat after me. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohenu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. You can be seated. Father, thank you for everyone gathered here. I pray that you would be present with us, fill us with joy, um, allow us to feel at peace. Um, Allow us to uh, receive whatever it is that, that your spirit would lead us to receive. Um, uh, encourage us with what we need to be encouraged by. Convict us of what we need to be convicted of. Move us forward. Move us towards the things of you. Help us above all else to learn to be more Christ-like. Um, to be more adequate and accurate image bearers of you in this world. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Okay. Um, so... The first century Jewish community, um, they read a lot of books, lots and lots of books, but no book was more important than the book of Daniel in their mind. Uh, And the reason the book of Daniel was so important was because of what it meant for them in their particular time in which they were living. Um, There's this message in the book of Daniel, this this thing that they understood to be a prophecy. Um, And it basically comes from an obscure sort of passage in Daniel 9. and in Daniel 9, there's this reference to sort of like, when will the, the kingdom of God really be set up? I mean, it was supposed to be set up originally um, in Jerusalem with King David, but that fell apart, and then this promise was made, and they keep going into exile, and they're awaiting. And Daniel has a message for God's people, and it starts at the end of the Babylonian exile um, that he sort of makes this promise. And it goes like this. It says, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression and to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So sort of cryptic, prophetic kind of speak Here's sort of what's going on. Um, They're waiting for the sins of Israel to sort of be purged. They're waiting for um, the the ways that they have gone astray to be repented of. And then it sort of talks about this to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. Um, The the reunification of Israel in Jerusalem with their king on the throne, their Davidic king on the throne, and them being established again as God's people in a kingdom that will have no end. When will this happen? And he says, 
Seven sevens and 62 sevens. He's talking about... So um, the early readers in the Jewish community understood that to be from the time of Daniel to the time of the kingdom coming, 490 years. And so this is what they have been waiting on. And generation after generation, they have been sort of um, praying and waiting and doing math, right, as you do. And there's all kinds of, of course, there's all kinds of different sort of rabbinical teachings and scribes. And they're out there saying like, well, here's how you should calculate it, which means it's about time. Or here's how you should calculate it, which means we have another generation. Or, or I think we missed it. God has abandoned us. These, some of them are like doom and gloom prophets, right? And so there's a lot of people sort of, sort of trying to figure out when exactly the kingdom of God is going to be established for real, like the final time. Uh, when Israel has sort of endured enough uh, punishment for their sins, for the ways they've gone astray, for the ways that they've not represented God well to the people in the world, for their injustices, for the way they've treated the poor and the immigrants and their neighbor and, um, and committed idolatry and following other nations and joining with them and worshiping other gods, all of these things. When is enough? When, when have they gone through enough? And when is the kingdom going to be established? And they came to the conclusion that, that where they were in the, in the time of the, the book of Acts, when it's being written, um, had been about 490 years. Um, they knew that they were somewhere between four and 500 years from that time. But the, the, a lot of chatter in the intertestamental period came uh, sort of that we have. We can see that they believed, like they, they, they believed they were the generation. Uh, I mean, every generation, I mean, right? Every generation kind of thinks that like, they're the great one, and they're the one. Everything is going to be made right. And, everything. and they felt the same way. But they had done the math, and they're like, well, no, God, this is the time. This is when God is going to set his kingdom up. This is when God is going to act, right? Um, and so the response to that, to understanding like, oh, I think we're, this is the time, and we're the generation, several things would begin to happen. There would be these messiahs that would rise up, and they would say, hey, I am the king of the Jews. And they would lead a revolt, and they'd ultimately be killed, crushed, Many of them were crucified, some of them beheaded, fed to lions, tortured, all kinds of things. Lots of messiahs were riding up, rising up, and Jesus was just sort of in their eyes, some of their eyes, uh, another messiah. The people passing by that day in Jerusalem when they, when they uh, in Acts chapter 2, they think, you know, oh, another messiah has been killed, so he wasn't the king, and so they're all waiting. Um, but one of the responses was not just the messiahs riding, rising up. Another response to this idea that this is the time, um, another response was well, then we better get ready. We should, we should clean the place up. So there was a lot of people running around saying, hey, we need to be God's people again. We need to live by the Torah. We need to offer the right sacrifices. We need to like refresh the temple. We need to practice the things of God so that when God returns and he looks around, he knows we're ready and the time has come and he will not abandon us. And there was this general sense that the gods in the ancient world, including the Israelites, viewed their God this way too, were punitive. That they were interested in um, punishing those by violence uh, who didn't live up to their standards. And so there's this general fear amongst the, the first century Jews that, that God is going to be angry if we don't clean things up and that he will not establish his kingdom if we don't clean things up. And so there's a lot of rabbis running around uh, and scribes and priests running around yelling at the people, trying to convince them, here's more laws to follow, more laws to follow, because somehow we're still breaking the laws because the kingdom is not here yet. We have to get the kingdom to come. What are we going to do? So they're running around trying to clean each other up and obey, by, obey the law and live by the law so that the kingdom would come and the Messiah would rise up and these evil Romans would be thrown out because their presence in the city makes it uh, 
impure. And what they would have is this nationalist utopia of the Jewish people there with their king, and then they would be a kingdom that would have no end. So when you come to the book of Acts, and you have Jewish people from around the diaspora, like gathering from every corner of the earth, and they're coming to Jerusalem, these are the conversations that are being had. This is the mindset through which they're viewing their time and their world. And they're excited to come to the Passover feast, and they're going to hear rumors about these messiahs, and they're going to hear rumors about uprisings, and, and they're going to talk about, well, we're almost there. God is about to do something great. And they're sending letters around. We had letters from ancient people um, that, are, that like, they write to each other, and they're like, hey, are, are you the one who is to come? Are you the one who is to come? And they're waiting for it to happen. So this is the lens through which we read Acts chapter 2. Now, um, how would they communicate these ideas of who is to come and who is not and what God is doing and what God is not? Well, the main way that information traveled in the ancient world in the first century was through oration, through rhetoric, through people giving speeches. Speeches were like an art form back then. If you wanted high status, you would give a good speech. Um, if you wanted to learn something, you would go listen to people's speech. People would stand on the street corners um, around the city buildings and the temples and out on the street corners, and they would deliver these massive monologues. It would go on for 30, 40, 50 minutes, and they would be about philosophy and about the meaning of life and about the world and about the greatness of the empire or about the folly of this or that religion. And they would talk about the beauty of love and what it means or the folly of love, and they would just deliver these orations that would earn them prestige. Uh, and favor in, in the eyes of all the people. But this is what people were drawn to. They didn't have CDs or records, any of this stuff. They didn't have television. Most of the Christians and the Jews didn't go to the plays because they were centered around pagan storytelling. They didn't go to the, um, the entertainment where they would hear the live music because oftentimes there would be executions. And the Christians and, and the Jews didn't take part in any of this. And so they backed away. And so the only thing they would really hear is these orations. Most of them could not read. They could not read the Bible. They would go hear it read. And so the oration, the way in which you delivered the message was huge. Now, readings in the ancient world were communal. You would never gather by yourself to read, really, the Bible. Unless you just were like, um, you have a couple instances of like, like the Ethiopian eunuch who, who is delivering sort of a text and he's on the side of the road and he's reading it, right? Like, and not many people would ever experience what it was like to read the Bible by themselves. Instead, the Bible would be read communally. Um, with voice inflection, with passion, and with meaning. And when you read the Bible, people would gather around to hear it. Um, and it would never be done in a way that was just like Acts chapter 2. And then the Spirit of the Lord came. And then you wrap it up and you're like, may God bless the reading of his word. And you close it and you move on. No, it, w it was a performance. When you read the book of Acts, it is written... Uh, to be read out loud, okay? Uh, as you read it, there's a narrative, there's a story, and then interspersed throughout the book, there are these monologues. Peter stands up sometimes and delivers this monologue. Other times, uh, Simon will stand up and deliver some monologues. Other times, Paul will give up and get up and deliver these monologues. These things would go on again, 30, 40, 50 minutes. Um, and throughout the books of, book of Acts, they're scattered throughout almost evenly to keep the reader's attention or the people who are listening keep their attention. And in the book of Acts, they've been, they've been of course, cut down because it's got, the whole thing's got to fit on one scroll. And you have a limited amount of space. So what we read when we get to these monologues, like in Acts chapter 2, um, we're reading sort of an act of oration. Peter would stand up, 
And he would deliver to a crowd, probably on a street corner. People saw what was happening, or they heard the commotion of the day of Pentecost. And they hear these people in this room, and they're talking in weird languages, and they're doing weird things. And there's like wind, and, and it's all lit up like there's fire or something. And they're gathering around, and their people are spilling out into the streets, and they're, and they're talking in other languages. And there's this spectacle. And the people are coming from everywhere. These Jews from all over the world are gathering around them. And Peter sees it, and Peter's like, here's my chance. Let's do this. And Peter stands up to deliver a sermon, and it's probably 40 minutes long, and the people are listening, and they have this lens and this mindset as they listen to it of like, wait a minute, everything I'm thinking about the world, is this what, is, is, is he opening up the hope that we've been waiting for? Is this what he's doing? And so here's what we're going to do. Lauren, come on up. Um, Lauren today is going to be Peter. Welcome, Peter. Peter Lauren, Welcome. Now, Lauren is going to read to you the text, sort of in oratory form. You are going to be the part of first century oppressed Jewish men and women who have been longing for your hope, longing to see this thing that have been, has been waited for for generations, and you're a little passionate, right? Like, you're excited, and when you hear something you like, I mean, if you ever go to a political rally and a guy says something you like or the girl says something you like, you're just like, you're just like yes, that's what, yeah. That's sort of the vibe that they were going for, that they would have had. So if you feel something, like yell it out, like feel it, okay? And, and she's going to read to us today's passage, Acts chapter 2, the Sermon of Peter. Hello? Check, check. I'm Peter, as you can tell. Um, fellow Jews. Do it, do it. <laughs> And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let us get this story straight. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These people here are not drunk. We're not drunk. It's, what, 11.30? 11.30 in the morning. We haven't had time yet. Um, this is what the prophet Joel announced would happen. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of our Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen carefully to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man thoroughly accredited by God to you, the miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him are common knowledge. This Jesus, following the deliberate and well-thought-out plan of God, was betrayed by men who took the law into their own hands and was handed over to you. And you pinned him to a cross and killed him. 
But God untied the death ropes and raised him up. Death was no match for him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Friends, let me be honest with you. Our ancestor David is dead and buried. His tomb is in plain sight today. But being a prophet and knowing that God had solemnly sworn that a descendant of his would rule the kingdom, seeing far ahead, he talked of the resurrection of the Messiah. No trip to Hades, no stench of death. This is Jesus, who God raised up. And every one of us here is a witness to it. Every one of us. Then raised to the heights at the right hand of God and receiving the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he poured out the spirit he, has, he had just received. That is what you see and hear today. For David himself did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And you ask me, brothers, what shall we do? Repent, turn around, let the scales fall from your eyes, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive this gift, this gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and for your children and for those who are far off and for all all whom the Lord, our God, shall call. Save yourselves. Do not be a part of this corrupt generation. All right. So as you can see, this is meant to be a moving experience. Now there's there's sort of three movements in this sermon. There's three uh, references to their texts that they knew and loved. There's one, in Joel, there's one reference to Joel, a big one, and then there's a reference to Psalm. Uh, there's another reference to Psalm 110. Uh, this week, I'm going to focus on, on Joel, and I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to move fast. Um, and then the next week, we're going to look at the other two. But basically, there's this general idea that the people are afraid of God because when God comes, 
They know they are not the people that they are supposed to be. And they carry guilt for, the, for what they've done to the prophets. They carry guilt for the ways that they have not offered sacrifices. They carry guilt for the ways that they have not lived up to being God's people. And so, so um, Peter goes to the book of Joel. Um, now, the book of Joel is really interesting. It's a really short book. Um, and it's a book about this terrible judgment. And then it's followed by this extraordinary act of mercy, um, unexpected mercy. And the book of Joel, they didn't really know what to do with it, and they didn't know how to fully understand it because they knew that when God was angry, they were going to get punished for it, okay? Um, and so the book of Joel, he, it, it works in three movements as well. At the first movement of the book of Joel, it sort of is about this, again, this terrible judgment. It starts off with, let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And they're terrified because they know that they have failed. And then it says, it is close at hand, the day of darkness and gloom, the day of clouds and blackness. Be very afraid. You know why, and I know why. And it's not looking good for us. But then there's this pause. Movement two in the book of Joel is this pause where there's sort of like this voice from the background that leans in and says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. What you're expecting, you may get something different. Maybe... God is not who we, who, who we thought he was. Maybe it will turn out to be something different. Who knows? We've got to try something, right? Now, there's this last part in the book of Joel where what happens is, is wildly unexpected. You see, Moses, at the, very be- at the very beginning of Numbers, like around chapter 11, Moses is frustrated um, with the leaders of Israel, and Moses goes to them, and they're not acting right, and, and he... And he knows the people are following these people who are not acting right. And Moses is like, I don't know what to do because the leaders are corrupt. The leaders um, who are the ones who have the spirit of God and were supposed to tell the people how to live, they're corrupt so the people can't live right. And then Moses says, I wish everyone would just be filled with the spirit. I wish everyone would. I wish everyone could hear from God and follow God and everyone could speak the truth of God to each other. I wish there was a way that this could be flatter. Instead of just the priests and the kings and the prophets receiving the Spirit, like what if they're corrupt? Then what do we do? I wish God would just fill everyone. And Joel picks up on this. And Joel says, in these last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. So Joel is hinting that like this dream that Moses had is a reality, that the hierarchy will be flattened, that everyone will equally be, a, be God's people and equally be able to follow and hear from God and gather together as God's people without this corrupt leadership that they have. Okay? Now, when the people are walking by this house and they hear all this commotion happening in the house, the first thing Peter does is Peter stands up and he goes out and he reads the book of Joel to them. Why? Because, because Peter knows that what Moses wanted 
And what Joel understood as the establishment of the kingdom is happening right now. Like in that building, in that room, it is happening. And it's not just, it's not just the, the, the apostles, the leaders of the church. It's not just them who are filled with the Spirit. That would be same old story. That would be same old, same old. This is different. There's 120 people in this space. And it says, tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them. Um, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues that the Spirit enabled them. Everyone was filled with the Spirit. Everyone. Men and women are prophesying. There's no longer just a small select group of men born of a certain lineage that have all the power and that speak for God. And women are standing up and they're telling us what God wants. And, and the old men and the, and, the, and the old women and children and young and old. And it says, even Joel says, and it's not just like the people with power. It's not just like the heads of the household. The servants and the slaves are actually being filled with the Spirit and they're talking and they're speaking and they're teaching people the things of God. And suddenly, um, a master who owns a slave is now being told the message of God from his slave and he has to submit and receive it. And this is a whole new epoch. This is a whole new thing. And he points to it. And so when you're giving a monologue, the very last thing that you would say um, in a passage is the most important thing that you would hold on to. And this is no different. Um, In the book of Joel that he quotes, he takes a a verse from Joel and he sticks it on the end. And it's this one right here. It's Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And we find it in Acts 2.21. And it says this, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Now, For you and I, this isn't a shocker. We've heard this our whole lives growing up, possibly if you grew up in the church. However, several things are happening here. First off, everyone, not just the Jews. No, no, no. Uh, This thing is opening up. And God is calling other people. And as we move through the book of Acts, we're going to see the second half of the book of Acts is everyone who calls on him enters in. This is a, it's like the message going, going universal, right? Now, The other interesting thing is the Jewish people that knew the book of Joel and knew this passage, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, they knew it referred to Yahweh. They always knew it referred to Yahweh, that that God who was a warrior God of vengeance who would storm in and they were terrified he was going to punish the people, um, but the same way they trusted him to like wipe out and kill their enemies. And they had this vision of Yahweh and who Yahweh was, which is why they're so terrified that they weren't living the way they're supposed to be living because God is coming back. And if we're not acting right, um, his wrath is going to be poured out upon all of us. But what Peter says here, he takes the idea of Lord, Yahweh, and he connects it with Jesus. And he says, and what you were expecting God to be like, that needs to be corrected because Yahweh is Jesus. So this is a shocking statement for the Jewish people. Everything that you thought Yahweh was and the ways that you viewed God, you now must look at Jesus because he's saying that Jesus is the divine presence of God right there in your midst. This is early Christian Christology, right? Like we talked about Christology back in September. Um, Christology is basically um, how you view Jesus. Um, 
There's some who have a low Christology. They, they view Jesus as he was like just a person who maybe was filled with the Spirit, like just, but just a regular human being. Um, and there's others who, who also have a low Christology that just say he wasn't a human being at all. He was just God in like a, a man suit. Um, but Christology, the Christology of Peter and of the apostles, of the disciples that they passed on to the early church was not that at all. It was fully the full presence of Yahweh, the divine and a full human being somehow melded together in one person that somehow Jesus was present through the whole thing. And he was saw and he was present at, at creation at, at times of, 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 of great glory and, and your establishment of your great city. And in times of distress and exile that Jesus was present. The son of God was there um, and that Jesus is the revelation of God. Now, this is shocking for several reasons. It means a lot of things. Why is Peter's Christology important here? Because what they were expecting about God was one thing, but what Jesus reveals is another thing. So first off, Peter believes that Jesus reveals God's full nature and that what you can now expect of God should now be edited in light of what you see in Jesus. The second reason is because Jesus has revealed God to be utterly lacking in vengeance. That God is not out for vengeance. That's not what God is interested in. And we thought he was. We thought this is what Yahweh was interested in. This is what we thought Yahweh wanted. But the revelation of Jesus is the greatest revelation in the Bible of who God is. And everything else must now be read through the lens of Jesus. This is the revelation of what we have. And what we find is Jesus has revealed God to be not punitive, but restorative. That God is not interested in punishing you. God is interested in restoring you. And God actually has never been interested in punishing you and making you feel terrible suffering, agony, and pain because you misstepped. God is interested in your flourishing. God is interested in your restoration. God wants his people to be made whole again, not because he's angry that they're not whole, but because he knows their purpose and their joy and the meaning that they were meant to have can only be found when they're made whole. And so this is what God is doing. Why is all of this important? Because if Jesus reveals God to us, what God is really like, and it is our role as the body of Christ to reveal to the world what Jesus is like, then we have some corrections to be made. We have some work to do. Because if Jesus is the full revelation of God, not only has the king returned, but it turns out he's not, he's not vengeful. He's not terrifying. He's not violent like we had imagined. Um, that though God is just, God's judgment is not punitive. It is fully restorative. And now we ourselves must display this to the world. We must be a people who are not vengeful, who are not punitive, and who are not violent. We cannot throw people away because they do not live up to our standards. We can't do that. That is not what the body of Christ does. Instead, we pour goodness out upon them. This is what Jesus has revealed to us. We do not rejoice at the suffering of evil ones. This one is hard to wrap our minds around. Um, we are so oftentimes gung-ho about enemies, violent, awful, terrible people, on the other side of the world, doing terrible things. And we rejoice when they're killed and destroyed. And while we do this, 
Christ is not rejoicing because Christ intends to restore humanity. And Christ does not abandon people, as it said in the sermon, Peter's sermon, Christ does not abandon people to the grave. Christ is chasing after them. Christ is interested in restoration. And the way to make people whole is not death. Um, And so we mourn that an image of God has been destroyed without restoration. And we desire good for them is what we desire. We do not exercise justice in a punitive way, making people feel pain or suffering or the spilling of their blood. Instead, we seek restoration. Judgment is important, naming what is evil and what does not belong in God's world. The response to judgment is where we go wrong. Um, God's response to judgment is to incarnate, to enter into their space, into their world, and show them the way out and walk with them out of it. Not to throw them away and lock up the key. And so the church seeks restoration in the world. Um, we, do also, we also do not shame other people. Instead, we seek to remove shame and help people see themselves as God sees them. Even taking it upon ourselves, if they bear shame, we liken ourselves to them. We associate with them and share in that as Jesus did, as he bore our shame on the cross. And so we stand with them and we allow ourselves to be mocked alongside them. And we speak and whisper into their ears the words of life that they need to hear as we walk towards wholeness. Nobody has ever been made whole by pointing fingers from afar and mocking and, and, and declaring shame upon them. What makes people whole is entering into their story, putting your arm with them and bearing their identity and walking them out of it. But the only way we can become these kinds of people and be a people who are Christ-like, and this is the goal, Christ-likeness. Oftentimes people think the goal is being right, and people think the goal is, um, what is let's find all the things that are right, all the right interpretations, all the right rules, and we'll just be, we'll be right. And when we're a right people, something will happen, and, and God will do something great with us when we're right. God is less interested in you being right than he is interested in you being Christ-like. What our goal is is to be Christ-like. There are plenty of people who are sure they are right, but they are not Christ-like. There are plenty of people who don't fully understand and they're wrong, but they have a heart for God and are trying to be Christ-like. God is with them and moving them forward, and I am with them, and you should be with them and moving them forward because God was with us in our darkest hours. And so God is calling us to be Christ-like. But the only way we can learn to be Christ-like, it it really starts with prayer, envisioning what it means to be a Christ-like people. It takes a lot of prayer and meditation on all of this. None of us naturally wants to be Christ-like. None of us um, wants for those who we hate and those who hate us, none of us wants for them to flourish. We want them to fall. We want them to fail. Um... We'd rather see them lose their job, their marriage, their money, suffer shame and ridicule and get their comeuppance. And we want them to feel the way that we felt. This is our desire, but that is not Christ's desire for them. Christ's desire for them is for flourishing and for goodness, for restoration, for these things that have caused this behavior to be cut away. 
for them to be made whole again. And God is bringing them towards that. And God is calling you to be a part of that. And so all of this begins with a simple prayer of imagining what their restored life would look like. And then beginning to slowly pray that for them. What would it mean for them to be a healthy person five, ten years from now? What would it look like? Well, they would, these attributes, these modes of thinking would be gone. These things may stem from a low view of self, may stem from abuse. They may stem from all kinds of things, bad ideas that they were taught, ways that they've been treated or been raised or, or racisms that they carry or whatever it is, arrogance or whatever. And these things maybe could be cut away. And what I see them in the future is like they have a, um, they have a family or, 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 or they, they know who they are and they are whole and they are healthy and they're serving people and they love God and they love people and they're healthy and they're good and they're fulfilled and there's a, a lightness about them and a smile on their face. But right now, everything you see is the opposite of that. And so we pray in this direction. This is, the early Christians had this sort of mindset of, of like, driven history that was like Christological. Like they understand now that Jesus was with the Babylonian exile. He was there with them, leading them, working with them, speaking to them, guiding them out. The Son of God has always been there and present, eternally begotten of the Father, always being sent to God's people to carry them out of this. And it is the faithfulness of God that they learned. That no matter how bad we were, God never abandoned us that he wants our restoration. And so this should be reflected in our prayers. Yes, I know I write like a three-year-old. I'm sorry, I was in a hurry. Look, this is, this is the direction of our prayers. We have this present brokenness, but we're God's people, and they're God's people. They're God's children, made in God's image. And there's this present brokenness, but we can see a kingdom, a future restoration in their lives, and so this is the direction that we pray in for these people. And whatever it is, that they have done to you. We need to go through that work of getting healthy as well. If you need counseling, you need prayer, you need a lot of serious work, this is what the church is for. But ultimately, we are getting healthy so that the world can be made healthy, so that we can pour ourselves out for people again, so that we can look at our enemies with love and say, I will not abandon you to the grave. I used to think that God would abandon me to the grave, and I no longer do, and I will not let this be that way for you as well. I see a day when you are flourishing, and oftentimes when somebody knows that somebody is invested in their human flourishing and the glory of God being shown through them, it begins to change them. And so our prayers must match God's revelation in Christ. Um, our hopes and desires for others, this is, this is what we should pray for them. Uh, not our will, but God's will for them. And it's difficult. It's hard. Um, so right now, why don't we respond to this with communion? And as we go to communion, there's uh, our communion service. You guys can take the elements and spread around the room. And there's a couple things I want to ponder. Um, I want to ponder God's faithfulness in our own lives. How at our darkest moments, God was there with us, ahead of us, pulling us forward towards restoration, towards wholeness. God is doing that now with you. Um... But it's not just that God is doing this for you. There are people in your life God is doing this for as well. And God wants you to join him in this work. However that looks. And so we're going to take communion. Uh, 
It's the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. I would love it if we do this communally today, um, if we could take communion together. If you can take it with somebody, look them in the eye and say, the body of Christ is broken for you, the blood of Christ is poured out for you. Let it get noisy and talking and all of that. Like, spend time in prayer if you need to, all of that. And we have another song that we'll sing at the end of all of this. If you need prayer, um, there will be people up here. I'll pray with you. There'll be a member of the prayer team or an elder up here to pray with you as well. And I believe also in the prayer room. Um, But take a few minutes and ponder all of this, the journey God has brought you on. God is with you. He's ahead of you, coming forward. God is not interested in punishing you, making you feel pain. And don't think that the pain in your life that you have is because God is doing this to you. You You may very well be sowing things that you've reaped. I mean, reaping things that you've sown. That was backwards. Reaping the things that you've sown. However, um, God's intention for you is wholeness and joy and goodness. We see it in Jesus. Do not block the message of Jesus with other scriptures and other things and putting him in front of it to silence the message that Jesus is for you and moving to make you whole again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all of this, for these people. Continue to make us whole. Continue to guide us with your spirit. Let us be a people who are Christ-like, who are formed by you, who display our Christoform life. May we seek to be Christ-like, not not seek to be right. And in our Christ-likeness, may you mold us into goodness and rightness. But let this be you. Continue to lead us. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.